Hello and welcome to Backchat. If the nature podcast is the established solar system we know and love, Backchat is a rogue exoplanet that you think you saw in your data, or maybe it was just wishful thinking and overtiredness. It's the first Backchat of 2016. Did you miss us? I'll take that as a yes. We've been digesting the science news, ready to bring you the tastiest morsels. I'm Kerry Smith, and I'm pleased to have with me Davide Castelvecchi. Hello, I am Davide Castelvecchi. I'm a physics reporter and also mathematics and uh, computer science occasionally. And also joining us, Ewan Calloway. Hello, I'm a life sciences reporter. I cover uh, most recently chickens. <laughs> and uh, Alexandra Witsey on the line from Boulder, Colorado. Yes, hi. I cover Earth and planetary sciences, however you want to define a planet. Excellent. We'll come to that. Now, coming up, The Selfish Gene, 40 Years On. Does Richard Dawkins' first and most famous book stand the test of time? Ewan Calloway, DNA aficionado, has been reading the book for the first time, ladies and gentlemen, and will be filling us in on how that has been going for him. Also in the show, rumours in science. There are whispers again of an announcement about gravitational waves. And Davide is ready to tell us later how true those rumours might be and how excited he is about them. And we'll be talking about Planet X. Not a new sci-fi film with Matt Damon, more's the pity, but a potential new friend for all the other planets in our solar system. In fact, Alex, I think we should just start with this, since this is a story that seems to have completely passed me by before now. There's another planet? Yeah, so this is a hypothetical planet that may exist, and it's absolutely gotten everybody fascinated in this past week. Um, what's happened is there's a, a pair of astronomers at Caltech who say that based on the way other objects, um, very far distant objects in the solar system move, they think there's a big giant planet out there, kind of a gravitational bully, kind of pushing all these other guys around. So just to put us in context, um, we are way out there at the edges of the solar system, right? We've got, you know, Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, and you go on out, you go to Neptune, you go to Pluto, everybody's favorite ex-planet, and it's out in this very distant, very cold realm that these two Caltech guys say there's a big, unseen, gravitational bully lurking. So why is it that these guys think that this giant planet might be hovering around on the edge of things? So they're deducing it based on the way that other objects in the solar system move. And there's actually a long history of this that, that makes sense for people to be predicting there could be an object there that we can't see. Uh, back in the 1840s, astronomers actually discovered Neptune um, because they had seen that Uranus, which was one planet inner, that it was doing strange things in its orbit. It had little tiny jolts in how it was moving around in the sky. And they assumed and calculated that there must be something else big out there perturbing its orbit. And they went and looked in the sky and they discovered Neptune. So these guys are, in a sense, trying to relive that. Now, if they could just point their telescopes at the sky and see it, they would be redoing what we had done with the discovery of Neptune in the 1840s. And I suppose so. it's not the first time people have predicted there might be new planets around, but this one came really out of left field for me. I don't know how you guys um, feel about that. Alex, this is your beat, so you've probably had a bit more warning than most. But where did this story just suddenly come from? So they've um, been thinking about it for a couple of years. It really got triggered by about two years ago, uh, another research team um, actually observed one of these strange far out objects, and it was on a very bizarre orbit. And as these uh, strange orbits have started to be found. People have started to see some of these weird objects. These guys at Caltech started to think, how could they be moving in such a way? And so they've been, the last couple of years, 
sort of going through calculations about what could be out there and where would it be and how big would it have to be and and where would it have to travel to explain everything. And then they just dumped everything on the world last week uh, in a paper in the Astronomical Journal. But they, they must have not just dumped it. Um, this is Ewan here because I, you know, I'm sitting in the, in the newsroom in London and I saw this story on our news board that said Planet X and I was like, oh, I'm sure Alex has written something really cool. She probably found some nugget at, at an astronomical meeting. And then the internet exploded and like, you know, Siam had a full magazine with this. Uh, our former colleague Eric Hand at Science had like a big feature. You had an awesome story. So there must have been a lot of like heads up, you know, warning of journalists that, that this is coming so they could prepare the, the internet to explode. Yeah. So if we want to talk about sort of the media uh, aspect of this, um, essentially what happened is the Caltech guys chose their favorite journalists that they wanted to, you know, uh, leak the story to in advance. So um, Caltech essentially contacted a number of journalists and said, we're going to be coming out with this really interesting paper in the Astronomical Journal. You know, um, do you want advanced information about it if you agree to the embargo? And then we can have a long discussion about the ethics of that. Actually, I talked with my editor quite a bit about whether to accept those terms. But so a lot of us had the stories prepared in advance. The Scientific American Planet X cover story, I believe, had been proceeding totally independently. So that was just an absolute coincidence. So, I mean, we can see all of these planets, exoplanets, we call them because they are outside of our own solar system. We see all of those without a problem. How did we miss this hulking great thing in our own system? Which is a great question. And actually, the morning after the discovery, I was talking to a philosophy professor, believe it or not, and he could not believe that we could not see this thing. He kept saying, this is in our solar system. We can see planets elsewhere. Why can't we see stuff in our solar system? Uh, and the answer is basically in how you look. Um, most of these planets that we've discovered in other solar systems around other stars, you see indirectly. You see, for instance, the slight dimming of a starlight when the planet moves in front of its face. So you can see the starlight drop and you know a planet is moving across it. In this case, we don't have that. This planet is not moving in front of the face of the sun. We can't see the light drop. Um, because it's far out there. And because it's so far, it's extremely dim. It doesn't reflect very much starlight, very much sunlight. And so what we have to do is get the biggest telescopes possible and look for something super, super faint, very far away. And that's just really, really hard to see. How confident are we that this planet exists? Is it just a matter of of finding it? Or are, are scientists really at odds about whether this thing is out there and it could just be some fluke in the data? Yeah, it could absolutely be a fluke in the data. Um, one thing to keep in mind is these these guys who calculated it are really good at these types of calculations, but there's only so many, there's only so much data, right? The statistics is essentially pretty low. So I've seen odds anywhere from, you know, sort of you know, 30% to 60% to 80% that this thing exists. It could very well vanish on further looking. Does it have a name, even informally? <laughs> it does. It's called Fatty. Uh, <laughs> Jehoshaphat or Fatty. Um, Mike Brown, who's one of the co-discoverers, is just very into into funny names. He's the one who named the dwarf planet Eris. Uh, he named it Xena after the warrior princess when he found it. Um, this one's This one's called Fatty. Yeah, Fatty the planet. Which reminds me of my second favorite uh, piece of coverage about this besides your story, of course, Alex. It's from the Washington Post opinion section. It's titled, Cruel Things Your Ex Has Said About You or Astronomers Describing the New Planet Nine. And, and Fatty is in there, number two. But number one is, A Distant Eccentric Perturber. 
<laughs> and one of my favorites is, quote, forcing any objects that cross its orbit to push into these misaligned positions. There's also one that's something along the lines of somewhere out in Cleveland. And and of course, with the massive perturber, um, someone on Twitter was like, it has to be planet Trump, right? If it's a massive perturber, it must Trump. be a Trump. With a, with a small envelope of gas, number 12. It is quite gassy. It is true. <laughs> um, won't Voyager just crash into it at some point? <laughs> well, Voyager would have to be going in exactly the right direction. And and space is 360 degrees. Um, I did ask, actually, if, you know, for instance, the, the spacecraft that just went by Pluto might be able to take a look at it. Uh, and it turns out that the telescope on uh, on New Horizons on that mission is just not really powerful enough or targeted enough to do any kind of a search for it. So um, I guess there's a small chance it might go crash, but it would be a super, super small, small chance. Mm, well... I mean, if not Voyager, then New Horizons. Voyager actually launched, I mean, it was a long time ago, 1977, and reasonably coincidentally, the year before that, a young evolutionary biologist published a book that became pretty enormous. Not as enormous as Fatty the Planet, but still. It's on every biology reading list I think I've ever been given, and it is Richard Dawkins' The Selfish Gene. And guess which of our in-house genetic spods has just read it for the first time? Hi, Ewan. Hi. <laughs> Funny, it wasn't on any of my reading lists. I don't know how how I missed it. You know, I've, I've read a, a brief history of time. I've read Guns, Germs, and Steel. I'm just trying to think of other, like, pop science classics. But somehow the selfish gene escaped me un- until this weekend. So 40 years ago, of course, um, this book was published, uh, which is why we're deciding to relive it right now. And what was Dawkins' main contention when he wrote this book? The basic idea of this book is that evolution, that is, you know, Darwin's idea of natural selection, it doesn't act on on a species. It doesn't uh, act at the level of a population or even, you know, a, a, a family or even an individual. It's at the level of a gene. So his idea, his insight was that uh, the diversity of life only makes sense if you think of evolution as uh Genes, self-replicating genes trying to replicate themselves. And do you think that at the time this was controversial? Because it's difficult to sort of take off the lens of the 40 years of biology and genetics that's happened since. Um, But it's a pretty stark message. Yeah, well, I have to say, uh, my first reaction to the book, especially at Central Thesis, was, was duh. Maybe that that's a lot to do with my background, which kind of I I don't know I was always interested in molecular biology, and I studied molecular genetics in detail before I studied evolutionary biology or zoology, and so I was always coming you know, thinking about biology from a genetic point of view, and it just I mean it, it, it to me it makes perfect sense that um, you know it, the only way to expre- explain the evolution of viruses, bacteria. Uh, more complex life is by by self replicating replicating genes, but I think, I mean Dawkins's idea. I've done a little bit of research. I mean, it wasn't completely original. I think he was building on uh, you know the last uh, sixty sixty or so years of of uh, molecular gen- genetics, and he particularly cites Bill Hamilton. I think the evolutionary geneticist is kind of formulating this really gene centric view. But from what I can gather, Dawkins was the one who kind of like synthesized it all and and wrote it so eloquently. That's one of the things that really took me away uh, was just how lovely his his writing is. His writing's lovely. The analogies are very easy to grasp. And he has some really nice examples. One of the most famous ones that's actually been referenced in scientific papers for decades since is this idea of green beards. So this is to say, what if individuals with green beards 
uh, were altruistic towards other individuals who also had green beards. So it was sort of a signal, basically, through which you could say, oh, well, you've got a green beard too, we must share genes, therefore I'll be altruistic towards you and help you survive and your genes survive as well. I mean, ideas like that just kind of quite uh, quite captivating. Mm, yeah, and I, I've heard of the green beard ph- phenomenon for, for quite a while, but I didn't realize it originated with this book. I was wondering, how does this concept of selfish gene relate to kin selection and the idea that uh, us being more willing to help our close relatives than other people because it's supposedly... Uh, right. Advant- advantageous. Right. You know, our we carry half the genes of our parents, uh, you know, half the genes of our brothers and sisters, an eighth of our cousins, on and on and on. And it, yeah, it, it exactly relates to that. But Dawkins' kind of kin selection, of course, existed as an idea before this book was published. Um, but it was almost seen as an exception. Like, this is how you explain altruistic behavior. Um, or, you know, maybe eusociality in close in insects that are where they're all very closely related. But what Dawkins has basically said is that it's not, you know, kin selection isn't anything special. Like this is just how it works. You know, the fact that if you think about evolution at the level of the gene, uh, you know, kin selection just falls out of it. And so you don't need to have some special kind of domain of of evolutionary theory to explain altruism. It just kind of ends up that way if you end up sharing enough genes. Do you see the imprint of the selfish gene, the the book? I mean, obviously, as you said, he wasn't the first to come up with this idea. But do you see its traces in modern genetics, in the influence that it's had on people who now study genetics and evolution? Yeah, I do a lot because I've been thinking, I've been thinking pretty hard about like what is a gene since I've been since I've been reading this and the 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 genetic student in me says oh it's a you know it's a protein coding uh sequence of dna but that's not what dawkins meant he meant that that it's, it's anything i mean it is written in dna but it's something that replicates itself and is passed on so if you think about some of the current trends in in genetics research people have a lot of interest in so-called junk dna uh it turns out this is this is a dna that doesn't code for for proteins and it turns out uh some of it does a lot of important things like control when, where, and how a gene is expressed. And even if it doesn't do that, Dawkins' formulation is that if you think of a gene as something that self-replicates and, and that's its essential quality, then it, it makes perfect sense that you can have just self-propagating bits of DNA uh, that is perfectly explained by the metaphor of the selfish gene. So the metaphor still stands then? Do you think that it might have... Um... Uh, like negatively affected the way that I mean, there's a lot of pseudoscience around Darwinism, and do, do you think that that this book particularly has had uh, a, a bad influence? No, I, I, I don't think it. I don't think it has. I just, I guess, my my little quibble, and I still haven't put my finger on why it troubles me, is is even though genes behave selfishly, I'm using lots of air quotes here for people who can't see me, um, it doesn't mean that selfish behavior, seemingly selfish behavior, can, can be explained by the replication of genes. And, and maybe it has to be. I'm still getting my head around that. Because I mean, I, I, I firmly believe that all natural phenomenon uh, evolved through evolution by natural selection. But that doesn't mean that everything we do has an evolutionary explanation. And this is where, where Dawkins, uh, he coins another term, I think, it was memes. Uh, it's basically talking about cultural evolution, that, you know, we can, we can pick up things like languages, um, religion, et cetera, that don't maybe have an, 
an obvious benefit for our, our, our selfish genes. And he's, he's definitely on to something there. But I think in so doing, he kind of minimizes the evolutionary antecedents for, say, moral behavior, um, which people like Franz de Waal have shown seem to exist in, in primates. And if just explaining that as, as kind of a parasite, a parasitic meme, I, I think that kind of ignores maybe some of the evidence that's out there. Well, it's a bit, it's sort of a bit dangerous to say, oh, we have to teach ourselves to be nice to each other every single generation. There's no innate uh, unselfishness and altruism that, that humans possess, which is essentially what he says very early in the book. I mean, if, if this is the must read for evolution, um, Davide, Alex, what was on your reading lists and never went away? What were the equivalent volumes for your areas of study? There's a book that made waves in the 1980s by James Gleick called Chaos. That was a book that pointed to commonalities of, among different fields of mathematics and science and, 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 and um, physics in particular. It, it kind of gave a name to a lot of different fields that didn't realize were looking at similar uh, phenomena or similar ideas. It's the book that made famous the, the idea of the, the butterfly in one continent, flapping its wings and causing a hurricane to happen maybe weeks later in a different continent. There's actually, um, Naomi Oreskes has a book called Plate Tectonics, which is not as many decades old as the uh, Selfish Gene, but it's a, a great roundup of, of why and how plate tectonics works. Um, more just kind of fundamentally, but not as scientifically, um, John McPhee's uh, geology writing, things like Annals of the Former World, um, have been not so much a, a game changer in terms of how scientists think about things, but I think about how the public thinks about geology, which is what I write about a lot. So, um, Davide, I just wanted to mention that that one book that's on my shelf that I'm looking at here is actually uh, Kip Thorne's book on black holes and, and time warps, which is from uh, from some time ago, but really kind of lays out in layperson's terms a lot of these mind-bending ideas about relativity and, and how space-time can be bent and, and how there are things predicted, like, for instance, gravitational waves. Ooh, for instance. <laughs> Davide, our final story is about rumours in science, but more specifically, to get us going, gravitational wave rumours. And uh, just to start us off, I think the best... Uh, your story about this had the best stand-first I've ever seen. It was... There were so many layers of maybe and mights and possibles. It was just very apt. I'm going to read it to people. The headline was gravitational wave rumours in overdrive. Physicists say they've heard that the LIGO observatory may have spotted the signature <laughs> of merging black holes. So you got away with that as news. Uh, tell us a little bit about this story for, for a start. Yeah, so this is actually the rumours started uh, not uh, this month, but they started in September. When the uh, so I should say there's these two giant observatories that are part of one experiment called LIGO Laser Inf Interferometry Gravitational Wave Antenna, and it's uh, so one of them is in Washington State, the other one is in Louisiana, and they um, they ran for several years in the 2000s and didn't discover gravitational waves. Um, but then they had a major upgrade, and the, they started the, the 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 newly upgraded experiment started in September. And I wrote an article about the you know all the great expectations for this uh, new run. Uh, and within days of my article coming out, the first rumor sprung up, and and 
um, it was a physicist, Lawrence Cross, uh, a cosmologist, who uh, tweeted that there was a rumor that they had already seen gravitational waves. So in, depending how you read this, the rumor is either probably true or not even wrong because it's not well-defined or probably false. So That's a fair spectrum. Yes. Uh, given how excited everyone is in general against the sort of le- background level of excitement about gravitational waves, why is it that someone is even tweeting about this? Where is this information even leaking from? So LIGO is a huge collaboration of nearly 1,000 scientists and engineers. And um, and Alex can tell us about more about what it looks like because she's been there. She's been to one one of the um, one of the interferometers, right? Yeah, I've been to the uh, the one in Louisiana. It's a uh, it's a big machine out in the middle of, uh, of of the swamps of of southern Louisiana. There's sort of two long arms set in the shape of an L, and they send lasers down each one, uh, bounce them off mirrors at the end, and then recombine them, and they return. And uh, if they notice a, a difference in the travel time when the lasers return, that could be a signal of a gravitational wave, which is essentially a ripple in space-time. And those we're keen to find because Einstein predicted them and they're, they're central to a lot of people's understandings of physics. So yeah, so and, it, and it's a huge collaboration that involves the people who work on the detectors themselves, but also then people who analyze the data who are in many universities around the world. And... In a way, it was bound to, hap- to happen that if there was some kind of um, event that popped up on the screens of the control rooms of LIGO, someone would you know, inevitably talk about it. Data showing on, on, their, on their computer screens does not mean that there is a discovery because, you know, in science, just as with Planet X, there's, or, uh, um, sorry, FATI, um, <laughs> there's, you know, there, there's, there's always different ways of interpreting data. There's always the problem of separating noise from signal. So these experiments have very complicated procedures to validate a discovery and decide whether to make an announcement. Probably the most persistent rumor is that they have seen a the signature of. Uh, so it, it's a very. If they, if this is what they've seen, is is a very beautiful. Uh, kind of sine wave, uh, which would be the gravitational waves emitted by two black holes in this sort of dance of death as they spiral into each other's arms and eventually merge into one black hole. The rumor is that they they will make an announcement next month in mid-February, but um, it's a rumor. So, Rumors about the waves, rumors about the announcements about the waves. I think it's, it's really interesting just sort of sociologically, right? Um, when you have these giant collaborations that are dealing with massive amounts of data that you have to sort through and try and make a coherent picture out of them. I mean, it really brings to mind, for instance, the LHC, the Large Hadron Collider, search for the Higgs boson, where you have just hundreds and hundreds of collaborators on two different instruments on this giant accelerator right near Geneva. And they're looking for a a signal that is like super important because if they found the Higgs boson, it was going to confirm so many things that physicists thought might exist. And and the LHC people, I think, were almost lucky in being able to, between the two instrument teams, confirm that there was a signal and do a coordinated announcement. 
Um, on the other hand, um, I really don't agree with these people who say, oh, we shouldn't be writing stories just because there are rumors about what they're doing. I mean, this is a giant, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars experiment, the LIGO Observatory. Can I ask, what's the status of the idea of doing blind injections into the data? This is where they put fake signals into the data stream to see if people can tease them out. That's another one of the interesting layers that, that I didn't go into. Um, so this blind injection is the idea that to keep the collaboration on its toes and to test whether they would react properly. In a field where you don't know until this, you know, until gravitational wave astronomy is well established, we don't know how often we should be able to see these events. So in preparation for this, the, the LIGO collaboration has this, uh, this um, almost perverse and, and sadistic uh, process for injecting simulated data into uh, the experiment. Actually, they, they can actually physically move the mirrors a little bit so that the lasers are affected and so that there's maybe the shape of waves that you would expect from astrophysics, except that it's fake. And they've done this before. They've done this twice in, in the previous decade. Their procedure is still in place. There's only three people who would know who would be in charge of this. So it could very well be that at least one of the rumored events is a simulated one. And if so, the researchers who are analyzing the data will not know until the very last minute when they've dis debated, validated, they've written up a paper, they're ready to make the announcement. Only when they, are, they have reached a consensus within the collaboration that this is what a gravitational wave is supposed to look like, then the, the blind injection team will open an envelope. Surprise! And say, well, sorry, this was not a real event. This was simulated. Or maybe they will say, uh, we didn't inject anything. This is all nature. These guys must be really popular at the LIGO Christmas party. <laughs> <laughs> Can I ask a question about what made you and your editor decide to cover these rumors? Because, you know, to Alex's point... People have been saying, even in the comment thread under the story, there are people saying, oh, you shouldn't cover it, it's just a rumor. Did you have much of a conversation about whether this was a news event or not and what you would do with it? For me, it's, it's an amazing example of scientists at work and how the process of science works. And also, if, if something is a huge, it creates huge chatter among physicists and, and it's in the open, it, it's fair game. It's, it's, and in, it's in fact something that, is part of our duty you know we, we, if we didn't cover it we, you know some some people could accuse us of of censoring the news i don't know what do you think alex yeah i mean at the end of the day you can you can say well maybe this story didn't tell us anything more than the ligo people are working through their data but you know they're working through their data and that's you know that's a fair statement and that's an accurate statement and uh, it's kind of nice to know what they're doing i mean the The notion of writing a story when, you know, when a science run begins and then not covering anything until the actual press conference. I mean, that's one way to go about it. But, you know, I, I, there is no harm in writing a story saying that, you know, people are working on this and, and trying to figure out what's going on and, and going from there. You know, that seems like fair game for a journalistic story to me. Rumors elsewhere in science that you, you know and love, that you remember, that came true, that were completely uh, damp squibs? Well, I was just thinking about... You know, my, my experience as a journalist and, and biology doesn't really have kind of 
the big projects with a big buildup, or at least a big project with a big buildup that anyone cares about that physics and astrophysics does. But the closest thing I've ever come across, come to it was the Neanderthal genome, um, which was uh, being worked on by a group in Germany and, and Harvard, a uh, big collaboration. And they had published, you know, a little bit of Neanderthal genome data. And there was this big question, like, did we or didn't we mate with them, uh, we being humans? And I was a reporter at New Scientist. And, you know, I was just jumping at any scrap to write any write anything. I, I remember like going to a pub in Cambridge, Massachusetts and just encountering one of the one of the key members of the team and just kind of like peppering for peppering him for any information. I didn't get anything on uh, when I published my story when the science paper came out, but that's really the closest thing I've ever encountered to this. Tight lipped Neanderthal geneticists. Back in 1996, it was literally the the day before I started working as a science reporter at a major paper in Texas, was this announcement of possible uh, life in a meteorite from Mars. This is the Allen Hills 84001 meteorite. And uh, there was a team at NASA that had done some um, sort of microscope type images, and they saw structures that they thought were microfossils. So this would have been you know, actual visual, visual evidence of microbial life on Mars at some point in the past. And uh, people got very excited about it. Uh, uh, President Bill Clinton made reference to it uh, in a press conference, which you don't normally see for, uh, for NASA findings. And um, it was a subject of great excitement for many years. But the, the story did unravel over time as it became apparent that the, the structures they were looking at were, were contamination or, or could be explained in other ways other than actual Martian life. So that was an example of, you know, there was a lot of excitement right off the bat, but uh, but turned out to be wrong in the long run. Well, I, I would hate to see the sad look on Davide's face if that turned out to be the case for gravitational waves. So let's cross our fingers and hope they're true. Let's also cross our fingers that we pressed record. Otherwise, this has been a blind injection of Backchat. Uh, thank you all for joining me. Thank you to Davide Castlevecchi, to Ewan Calloway and to Alex Witsey on the line from Boulder. Would you like to, as is traditional, give your Twitter handles to listeners? Davide. I am the Castelvecchi. I will not uh, spell that because it will take another half hour. Um, I'm Ewan Calloway. And I'm at Alex Witsey. The last name is W-I-T-Z-E. Thank you all again for joining me. I'm at Minnie Kerry. Thanks for listening.